and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and it's my pleasure to welcome William Kent Kruger to the program today. Kent is best known for his award-winning Cork O'Connor mystery series set in Minnesota. He's also written three standalone novels, The Devil's Bed, Ordinary Grace, which won the Edgar for Best Novel, and his latest one, This Tender Land, which is published by Atria. Kent, the narrator at the beginning, lets us know that he's telling the story from a long time ago, from his younger days. Why did you want to frame the story this way? I wrote an earlier novel called Ordinary Grace. I think of it as the companion novel to This Tender Land. And I framed that novel in much the same way. Maybe part of the reason is, is my admiration for To Kill a Mockingbird, which really is framed in exactly the same way. You have an older, wiser narrator recalling a time much earlier in the childhood, and so you've got two voices going on. You have that older, wiser voice, and then you also have the more naive, fresh voice from the younger perspective. And I really liked that in To Kill a Mockingbird. I also like the challenge of that because that's a really tricky point of view to pull off, that that dual point of view. So I like the challenge of it, but also I just like the idea that all of us look back, those of us who have a few years behind us, look back on our lives, and we would love to be able to talk to our younger selves to offer advice, wisdom, encouragement. And so in this tender land, for those who finally read it, you will see a narrator who is doing nothing but rooting for his younger self (laughs) to make it through all the trials and tribulations. How do you deal with the case that it takes away a little bit of the narrative tension that we know the narrator succeeds on some level and lives throughout the end of the book? Sure. If I was writing a novel in which I had intended to put my protagonist in visceral danger, you know, you could be killed, I might have handled it differently. But this is a different kind of story. This isn't about the visceral dangers so much as it is about an epic journey of discovery. Now, you do start off the book with an epigraph from the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So we know traveling is in store for our characters. Sure. That's singing me muse and through me tell the story. And that's straight from the Odyssey. What was the muse that brought you this tale? Do you know, I had wanted for a very long time to write an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. I mean, for years, that's been a desire at the back of my mind. All of the elements, at least for me, need to coalesce before I can actually begin to write a story. I know a lot of my friends who just wade in with only the vaguest notion of what they're going to write and discover it as they go along. I need to know a little bit more than that. So it took a long time, really, for the second element of that storyline to occur to me, and that was when I thought, well, I loved Huckleberry Finn as a kid, but I also loved The Odyssey. As a kid, what if I merged those two kinds of stories so I could create a story of a kid on the river, but the adventures that he experiences are structured in the same way that Homer structured the Odyssey. And when that happened, Odie's voice dropped into place. Some of the characters began to occur to me. I saw where the river journey was going so that I could enter that journey of the writing of it with a clear idea of where I wanted to go, even if I didn't know all of the specifics at that point. Even maybe a little bit of The Wizard of Oz in there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In fact, there was more of The Wizard of Oz in there until my editor said, no, you need to cut that. (laughs) But we do have four main characters who hit the road together. and You know, I never thought about that aspect of it. I don't have a scarecrow or a tin man or, or a cowardly lion, but I have four kids who form a family. Well, they were almost the antithesis because... 
one had so much courage, the other one had so much heart, and another one was very smart. So they were kind of the opposite of the traveling companions. You know, I never looked at it that way. Can I use that in my talks as I sure go around promoting the book? <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> we learned that the narrator's name is Odie, and he and his older brother, Albert, are orphans when the story really begins in the summer of 1932. When I had originally conceived just the seed of the idea years and years ago, I thought it would be a kid, an adolescent, and an older Native American kid. Then those would be the two who would do the journey. So Odie would be the Huff Finn, and the Native American kid would be the Jim character. But as the story began to reveal itself to me in my thinking, I realized I needed a larger cast of characters because one of the major themes in my thinking became family, search for home and the search for family, and what does home mean and what does family mean. So I needed a larger cast of characters to create a family not based necessarily on bloodlines, but on affections and experiences and reliance on one another. And so it wasn't just this Huck Finn character and this Jim character. Now it's a large cast of characters. Not to give too much away, but there is a name change later on that echoes the name change in Huck Finn. There you go. There you go. And (laughs) Moonshine plays a role. Sure. Pat Finn was uh-huh. an inveterate drunk. And That's it was right. That's Odie right. and Albert's father That's was in the right. moonshining business, the bootlegging business himself. Yeah, there you go. So you caught all of those. You know, I thought only English teachers were probably <laughs> going to catch all the references that and all my uh, references to the Odyssey. I figured only English teachers will get all this. Have you ever met John Clinch before? I have not. He wrote a book called Finn, Finn. about yeah. Pat Finn. I've been told about it many times. And yeah. so that's where my You're knowledge. recommending it, yes? I recommend it, yes. Okay, okay. By all, by all means, it's a, he's a fabulous writer and is a very good tale. And if you have interest in Huck Finn, I'd definitely uh, check it out. Absolutely. They are in Minnesota when their father dies. Of course, social services aren't greatly developed at that time. And they're placed in the Lincoln School and they are very out of place. Sure. The Lincoln Indian Training School is, as the name suggests, a boarding school for Native American kids. But our two brothers, Odie and Albert, find themselves there through a tragic series of events. And although they're out of place there, they befriend and are befriended. Because in an, in an environment like that, in order to survive, you need to connect. You need to help one another. They form those connections both with the kids and with uh, the staff at the school, and people putting themselves in jeopardy to help the kids that, in the end, saves them all, at least from that particular environment. The history of the boarding schools were an attempt to eradicate the culture of many Native Americans, and it's sad and infuriating when you read more about it. Sure, for those who don't know anything about that, and there really are a lot of white folks who don't know anything about the tragic history of the Native American boarding schools. They were begun by a guy named Richard Henry Pratt, who was a military man. He had done some Indian fighting in uh, the Southern Plains and had begun some educational work, and he convinced the government to allow him to open the first Native American boarding school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in the late 1880s. It was considered a success, and so the government invested in a number of Native American boarding schools following that same plan. They were really, in truth, horrific environments, although they were supposed to help Native American youth adjust to white society. In truth, it was a large-scale effort to dissolve the culture of the Native Americans by stealing their children away. 
Uh, when children arrived at a Native American boarding school, they were stripped of their clothing. Uh, they were washed in harsh lice soap or kerosene, ostensibly to remove lice. Hair is a sacred element in so many of the Native cultures, and these kids who had these beautiful long braids had them shorn off. They were given uniforms to wear. They were not allowed to speak their native tongue or practice their native religion, and if they did so, they risked suffering incredibly cruel penalties, punishment. It was a tragic history, part of the history of how our white society treated our Native American brothers and sisters. There was a law passed in the late 1800s that allowed the government to take the children from their Native American parents, and their parents could not prevent that. They had no recourse. That law was in effect until 1978 when the National Indian Child Welfare Act was passed. Until 1978, if the government wanted to come and take your children and put him or her in a boarding school as a Native American parent, you could not prevent that. It was just a, a very long, tragic part of our American history. To kind of add insult to injury, the name of the school is Lincoln, and it's so close to Mankato and the horrible executions that took place in 1862 there. Which also play a part in this tender land. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure how I was going to deal with that part of the history or even if I was going to include it. But as soon as I began to understand the history of Mose, who was the mute Native American kid, I knew I had to include that whole tragic history as well. I mean, <laughs> when you look at the history of white Europeans' interactions with the indigenous people of this nation, it's nothing but a tragic history. Now, before the interview began, I joked about the stereotype of Minnesota nice, but in the 19th century, it was not a, that at all. No, it wasn't that way anywhere in the United States in terms of how we treated the people who were on the land long before us and whose land and resources we so coveted. At the Lincoln School, Odie is spirited, has a sense of justice, and neither of those two were appreciated. <laughs> no. I really invested a lot of myself into Odie. Odie is the kid I always wanted to be. So Odie is courageous. He's fearless. He questions authority. He's pretty wily. Those are all the things I wanted to be when I was a kid. <laughs> so in creating Odie, I just invested him with all of those wonderful attributes. He also is a little reckless. He rushes headlong into things without thinking, which is where his older brother Albert comes in, who is the thinker. He's the guy who has a strict moral code, who looks at the long view of things rather than in that present moment. And so Odie survives in large measure because Albert protects him. And looking at your bio, you do share the fact that you value justice over your position in a school. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, are we going to tell that story? Do you want me to tell that Please, story? Please, by all okay. means. We're talking here about my very brief time at Stanford University. I matriculated at Stanford in the fall of 1969, but I was forced to leave in the spring of 70 because of my radical activities. For anybody out there listening who is of my age, I'm almost 70, you remember that the spring of 1970, we were deeply involved in the Vietnam conflict, and it was a conflict that so divided our nation. Family against family, divided communities. And in the spring of 1970, for those who really remember, that was the spring of the Kent State shootings. It was also when we finally learned the truth of the secret war that was going on outside Vietnam in Cambodia and Laos. 
Stanford at that point in time had a relationship with an organization called the Stanford Research Institute, whose primary source of income at that point in time was research in military weaponry. And there were a lot of us at Stanford who felt that was an inappropriate relationship for an institution like Stanford to maintain, particularly at that point in history. So we petitioned the trustees to sever the relationship, the administration, everybody we could. Nobody, of course, listened to us because there was so much money involved. So finally, we marched into the administration building one day and took it over. The president, who was a pretty reasonable guy, a guy named Richard Lyman, said, I'm not going to give any problem. He vacated the building and we took it over. That night, about 8 o'clock, we had a band come in and we held a dance where typically we would have registered for classes. About midnight, the band packed up and took off. Those of us who were going to occupy the building rolled out our sleeping bags and went to sleep. And at 1 o'clock, the Palo Alto riot squad swept through and arrested us all. I was on a full scholarship to Stanford, and my scholarship was yanked. So I had to leave. That's terrible, but you had you had your morals. There you go. And you had your sense of justice. You know, like, here's, here's just this beautiful moment. When I called my parents to tell them the situation, my father told me, I've never been more proud of you. Amazing that he could see it that way, and I'm so glad he did. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's also very troubled times in America in 1932. We're coming to the end of the Hoover administration. The Great Depression is underway, and how has it hit this area of Minnesota? In the same way that it's hit so much of the Midwest, crop prices are down. Production is difficult because we're just beginning to enter the Dust Bowl years. This is when you have the rise in Minnesota of the Democratic farmer and labor parties, what we now know as DFL, coming together, co-ops. There were large-scale demonstrations. People were just in dire straits. Farms were being floor-closed on and that was everywhere. It was everywhere. Nobody had any money. And those few who did were not particularly generous in how they used it, even in Minnesota, the land of nice. So these kids, when they leave the Native American boarding school, which is a horrible situation, find themselves in the horrible situation of the Depression outside of that school. They have very little resource and, like so many people, end up in the course of their this epic journey they're on, relying in large measure on the kindness of strangers. And so... They meet those people who are kind to them. They also meet those people who are not so kind. I chose the era of the Depression to set the book because I wanted to talk about the human spirit in all of its dimensions. And I wanted to talk about how we as human beings respond to one another in a period of great privation. And the Great Depression was a perfect time period for that. And unfortunately, the people at the Lincoln School in the book have taken this time to take advantage oh, okay. of their charges. Now, we don't want to give too much right. away here. But they are sending the students out to farms in the area, essentially as peonage, slavery by another name. Which is exactly what happened in so many of the Native American boarding schools, although there were supposed to be programs to teach these kids skills that would serve them well uh, later on in life, life skills, uh, work skills. So very often the real truth was is that they were simply used as free labor for members of the community. Running this is Mrs. Thelma Brickman. And to draw the parallel back to Wizard of Oz, she's known as the Black Witch. <laughs> she's known as the Black Witch, yeah. <laughs> she is quite an unpleasant person. She is quite an unpleasant person, and she's a very unpleasant person throughout the course of the story. But every good storyteller knows that nobody is entirely bad, or if they're really bad, they're bad for a reason. None of us are born evil. So toward the end of the book, you get a glimpse of why Thelma Brickman is the way she is. And she kind of has 
a husband. It's her second husband. Basically, they're just assistants in her life. Yeah, Clyde Brickman is the kind of man who will not cross the kind of woman the Black Witch is. Yeah, and they both profit tremendously from what goes on at the Lincoln Indian Training School. You mentioned that there are staff members that are are sympathetic toward Odie Mm -hmm. and the other students Mm -hmm. as well. Could you talk about Hermann Foltz a little bit? Yeah. Hermann Voltz is the superintendent of the carpentry shop. He's an old German. He has four and a half fingers, <laughs> so some of the kids refer to him as old four and a half. He's a kind-hearted individual who does his best to mitigate the worst of what the Lincoln Indian Training School throws at these kids. And in the end, he's very helpful in helping them escape. Although they're brothers, Odie and Albert have very different temperaments. As you mentioned, that Odie's very, I wouldn't say impetuous, but very passionate. Well, I would say he is impetuous. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy's passionate. Andy's not quite 13 years old. so He's, he's still almost ha- there, though. <laughs> yeah, he still has a lot to learn about life, whereas Albert is a few years older than he is, has seen more of life, understands the ramification, the terrible ramifications of crossing the Black Witch. And when they finally do cross the Black Witch, he understands the the truth of the difficulties ahead of him. And Odie sees it initially as just a a grand adventure. But it's Albert who understands what they're really going to be up against. While Albert is mechanically inclined, Odie has the soul of a musician. (laughs) And him and his little harmonica can uh, lift many of people's spirits. Odie is the musician. He's the poet. He's the storyteller. He's the guy who operates from his heart. Albert is the guy who operates from his head. He has a strict moral code. He's an engineer, really. Odie's more of the coyote. There you go. There you go. Odie plays a lot of music throughout the course of the Uh book. How do you pick the songs that they're going to be playing during the course? So when I was, I think, about 11 years old, maybe in the fifth grade, my parents, for all of us kids, one of our Christmas presents was an album of American classic ballads sung by a woman named Joe Stafford. And Joe Stafford was uh, just had a beautiful voice. She was a big band singer back in the day. And so Shenandoah was on that record and old Joe Clark, just all of the great American ballads. And so... I listened to that record until the, I'm sure all of the grooves were worn to nothing on it. When I wanted to choose songs for Odie to play on his harmonica, very often I simply popped back to that. But I also went back in all of the research that I did and went back to see what songs were popular at that point in time. What might Odie have become aware of as a result of listening to the radio that he might try to play? And so all of that I used in creating the, the playlist for Odie across the course of the story. I was wondering if maybe Mr. Zimmerman had any influence on the tunes you picked. <laughs> I actually cut a lot of the songs in, when I edited the manuscript. I cut out a lot more songs that I had included in there. There's one of the things that I noticed in the book that you do mention movies, you do mention books, you mention songs, that these people are part of the culture. And a lot of times in fiction, we see no reference to any of the materials that entertain and enlighten us. Well, people are calling this an historical novel, which kind of surprises me because it takes place in the Depression. I was born not that long after the Depression. I grew up on stories my parents told about their experiences in the Depression. It it didn't, even when I was writing it, didn't feel historical to me. 
But because I didn't live in that time, I had to make sure that the factual underpinnings for the story were in place. So I did an enormous amount of research, pouring over newspapers, from, particularly from the summer of 1932, when the story takes place, to see what was going on in the larger scheme of things, politically what was going on, culturally what was going on. What did things cost back then? What were people talking about back then? Just to make sure that the, the whole backdrop felt real. If you haven't got that together, if people are questioning that, you're going to lose them. They won't be, pay any attention to the important thing, which is the story itself. I remember the, the Red Wing boots were $5, <laughs> which <laughs> I understood was a big amount of money back then because just a couple of years ago, I wanted to get a pair of Red Wing boots like my father used in sure. his work life. And I went, $350 for some boots. I know. Oh, I can't handle that. I know. So I poured over all kinds of things trying to find the cost of Red Wing boots. I finally had to call the Red Wing company and I talked to someone inside the company who said, you know, I will research that. She got back to me and I acknowledged her and uh, put her in the acknowledgments <laughs> of this tenderland because she was so generous. Also at this time, there's a huge divide between rural and urban America. You have the electrified, plumbed-out city, and you have many places in America that don't have electricity except maybe some batteries in the radio and no indoor plumbing at all. Sure. The kids get exposed to both ends of that spectrum. I mean, they come out of a place that physically is much better than so many of the places they experience as they're making their journey down the rivers. For example, the Lincoln Indian Training School has showers flush toilets, three meals a day. Not great meals, but they're three meals a day. When they leave, they go for a very long time without a shower because people just didn't have indoor plumbing back then. Most small communities really weren't involved at that point in time in the rural electrification program. So things were dark. They had the radios, for example. They used a battery that they would charge up from often from their cars. They would run their cars and charge up the battery for the radio. And getting all of that together to make the time frame seemed real was important to me. So when the kids finally hit, for example, Mankato, which to them is a large city in Minnesota, it's an okay city in terms of size, but for them it's a large city and Odie just feels like a fish out of water. He doesn't quite know how to operate there. And they're on their way to St. Louis, which is an even bigger city. And when they hit St. Paul, they experience all that a, a growing, vibrant city offers at that point in time. I looked on the map and I couldn't find a Fremont County in Minnesota. So where would it be if it existed? Yeah, if you were thinking it's southwestern Minnesota, so you kind of think Pipestone area. The Lincoln Indian Training School is in fact based physically and in many other ways on the Pipestone Indian Training School, which was in southwestern Minnesota. So anybody who knows Minnesota, just think southwestern Minnesota. Interviewed Thomas Maltman several years ago. Oh, sure. And his book was set, I guess, in similar style. Was this grants. for Little Wolves? Yes. Yeah, what a great book. And also Nightbirds. You know, sure, Nightbirds, um, which is the, uh, the Dakota conflict. So is New Ulm where New Bremen is supposed to be or – do you know Minnesota? I, I looked at the map. Yeah, New Ulm is the basis for New Bremen. Sure. Because the only time I went into Minnesota when I was I was in Grand Forks, North Dakota, I was driving up to Winnipeg. Okay. And I had to stop there and get a um, insurance card to drive into Canada. Oh, interesting. And so I just crossed over the river real quick to, <laughs> to take a look at uh, Minnesota. And that's that and the Minneapolis airport. That's all okay, I Okay, okay. Well, many, Minnesota is an absolutely wonderful place. So you should come back sometime. I will try to make it there. As kind as Mr. Foltz is 
to the children, there is a man whose cruelty seems to know no bounds, and that's Mr. DeMarco. Yeah. Well, there's evil and there's good in the world. It's that conflict between good and evil that creates the suspense. And so you have the forces at work inside the Lincoln Indian Training School who can destroy the kids, and you have those forces who are trying to save the kids, preserve them. And so part of the conflict in that first part of the story is of those forces who is going to prevail in the end. And DeMarco certainly represents evil at its deepest level. While working on the farms was a tough go, and as punishment, Odie was going to have to go and help harvest some alfalfa, which was just a terrible Work in the hay fields, those hay fields. Terribly yep. hard time. He pulled the relatively easy duty of going over to Mrs. Frost's house and mm-hmm. helping her out. Mm-hmm. Although it was hard work, it seemed to be a joy for them. Yeah, because they like Cora Frost. She's kind to them. Working for her is different from working for Bledsoe. They're doing something that is meaningful and helpful to her. They are thanked and rewarded for it. Very different from what goes on at Bledsoe, slaving uh, in the hayfields under a hot sun. I drew on my own work bucking hay (laughs) when I was a teenager. And it's hot, it's sweaty, and when you're working with hay dust, it just, you itch all over. And I couldn't think of a worse thing to make a kid do. My father was a pipe fitter, and I asked him why he became a pipe fitter. And he says, because I didn't want to work for a living. (laughs) Because his father and his his uncles had a sawmill where they cut railroad ties. And in the summer off of school, he would have to take the mule out and fell trees and bring them back to the sawmill. And he goes, I didn't want to do that anymore. So pipe fitting was a dream. Yeah, the things you learn as a child that, uh, you know, shape all your decisions later on. Mrs. Frost has a daughter named Emmy, and she has some strange abilities. Emmy is a unique child, and Odie doesn't really become aware of all of those unique abilities until much later on in the story when he finally begins putting together things that have occurred across the course of their journey, and it finally dawns on him the full extent of Emmy's uniqueness. Back then, tragedy seemed to be so much closer to than it is to us nowadays, and that there was always a disease or an agriculture farm accident waiting to just tear families apart. Yeah. Well, and not just that. The whole depression was tearing families apart. This was a time of great separations I can't remember the government organization that estimated back then that there were, I think it was 260,000 homeless teenagers out there walking the roads trying to find shelter and food and maybe a job during the Great Depression. Many of them were orphans, like the kids in uh, this tenderland. Some of them had simply been abandoned. Some of them left of their own volition because there wasn't enough food to feed them or because the situation was so horrific that they had to leave. It was just a tough time. We won't say much about it, but the fact that the first big section of the book is called God is a Tornado, (laughs) there's a dark cloud over that first part of the book. Indeed there is. Indeed there is. Part of what I'm talking about in this tender land is the nature of God. And here's a kid, Odie, who's not quite 13, and he sees all of the horrific things that occur around him, and he can't help but, but rail at God and ask, what kind of a God are you? And then he sees all of the kindnesses that are offered to him, and he's, he can't put that image of God together with the tornado God. So across the course of this journey, that's one of the things he wrestles with, is what is the nature of God? 
That's awful heavy thinking for a 12-year-old. Yeah, it is. I don't think he thinks of it in exactly that way. But I certainly think of it exactly. That's still something I'm trying to figure out. Now, the main character in Ordinary Grace was 13 years old. Odie is 12 going on 13. What in your later writing career has attracted you to the, the coming of age story? Yeah, I never grew up. It's that simple. <laughs> I think in my own life, those years, 12, 13, 14, were some of the most important in terms of things that were changing in my own life. And I recall that period of time in, in my life really vividly. And so it's easy for me to go back and create that threshold of adulthood for male I don't think I could do it if, if I couldn't create a, a, a female character who's going through these things. I don't think. Who knows? But it's not difficult for me to, to create a character like Odie or in uh, This Tender Land, a character like Frank Drum, who is the 13-year-old narrator of that particular story. The Cork O'Connor stories have continued on. How is it like to juggle writing a standalone like This Tender Land sure. while you're trying to continue on this beloved long-running series? It hasn't been difficult at all, actually, because I never work on uh, two manuscripts at the same time. So I'm not working on one manuscript in the morning and a different manuscript in the evening. Typically what happens is if I'm working on a contractual obligation in the Cork O'Connor series, when I finish the first draft, I'll try to put it away for a little while so I can take a look at it with a fresh eye later on. And when I put it away, I work on this tender land. Then when I come back to the Cork O'Connor manuscript and make my revisions. I send it to my agent. And while she's looking at it for comments, I work on this tender land. When it comes back, I make the revisions. I send it to my editor. While he's looking at it for suggestions, I'm working on this tender land. And that's the way I've done uh, all of my standalones. Was it difficult to keep a sense of continuity since it was being broken up? Do you know, that's an interesting question. And the answer is no. And I'm not sure why, except that the story was so profound, spoke to me in such a profound way that it was very easy for me to go back and recapture the energy of the flow of the story. We also should mention that Atria republished the first novel in the Cork O'Connor series this year for the 20th anniversary celebration. <laughs> That's Congratulations. Right. Thank you very much. You know, it's been actually 21 years now, and I think about uh, coming out with that first novel 21 years ago, would I ever think that I have 20 novels, 20 novels out at this point to you? I would have told you you were crazy if you told me that then. And now you've won several Minnesota Book Awards, several Anthony Awards, the, the Edgar for Ordinary Grace. You've uh, had quite a career. It's just been remarkable. It's, uh, what can I say, a dream come true. So how often do you pinch yourself? <laughs> That's what my wife does. <laughs> She keep you honest? <laughs> she keeps me honest and humble. <laughs> Are we looking for more Cork next year? I'm not sure about next year. I am at work on the next in the Cork O'Connor series. It's a novel that will be called Lightning Strike, and it's actually a prequel to the Cork O'Connor series. I'll be finished with it in time for it to be published next year, but my publisher has uh, given some signs that they may hold off publishing it for a bit. I'm wondering if that's because they'd like to see how how long uh, this tender land might, what kind of legs this tender land might have. So we'll see. Yeah, when the paperback comes out and you're hitting every book club in there the land. Go. There you go, yeah. Well, I wish you so much success on this. It was, it's been a fabulous read and a fabulous time having you here today. Thank you so much, Kent. Thanks so much, Stephen. I've had a wonderful time. Thanks so much. William Kent Kruger is the author of the novel This Tender Land, which is published by Atria. I'm Stephen Uswery, and this is Book Talk.
Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.